Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is November 24, 2015. And yes, we only have a few more days, and Thanksgiving is on the way. Of course, I do have to work, but that's all right. Holiday pay is the best, right? Um, I am here with an amazing woman. And the reason why she is amazing, because I never known anyone to write a memoir in eight days. I couldn't even write my graduation paper in eight days, okay? Took me a, probably a good two weeks to get that together. So she's a bad mama jamma. And not only is she a writer, she's a song creator, a soul hippie, a peace nick, and a self-professed guinea pig who loves to the unconventional ways to shift per- paradigms in the playing fields of healthcare, storytelling, and, of course, world peace. She has an awesome book out, her first book, Confessions of a Middle-Aged Hippie, burst with antidotes from her years in the entertainment industry, coupled with stories of survival from her life lived with health issues, so we'll be talking about all that, astrology, the hippie movement, legendary, Leo, everything that multi-tag we'll probably be talking about from traditional medicine or turn to medicine. So keep your ears and eyes open. Do call in 3451, and if you have not said it yet, you better say them positive affirmations. I am happy. I am grateful, and you're millionaire-minded. Make sure that you do um, text. To 81010 milled mind. 81010 milled mind if you have not yet already done so. It's positive motivation. It gets you going. And to say it, you have to believe it, right? So we're going to get this thing started with our girl, Beverly Golden. I don't even think I even said her name. That's a darn shame. See, I'm off task, but Beverly. Hi there, that was quite the introduction. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. I think we have a lot to talk about from uh, from what you were saying there. Yes, I said I don't even think I even said I don't even think I gave her. I don't even think I said her name. I just came on out with um, all the good details. But you know that's amazing. Just reading that little part in your biography, you did a memoir in eight days. There's no way. I said you did a memoir. You know what? So the the interesting thing about that is that's what attracted me to it. You know, like, I mean, I had this incredible experience just to go into that a little bit. I was uh, on vacation in Sedona, Arizona. I'm in a swimming pool talking to this woman who's an artist and a writer. And she said, you know, I just had the most interesting experience. She goes, I've been writing 25 years, but I've never had this kind of experience. She goes, I was just at this writing retreat. And everyone writes their book in eight days. And my ears perked up. I went, eight days? Wait a minute. <laughs> That's my kind of writing retreat. And I proceeded to ask a ton of questions. Like, I'm sure everyone listening is going, eight days? How do you write a book in eight days? So I was Why? like, I was captivated. <clears throat> well, I was captivated. So she's supposed to get back to me, give me all the details about you know, the writing retreat, the person, and of course she disappears and I'm on my own. So the researcher in me goes, well, this shouldn't be that hard to find. Let me see what I can do. 
So when I, I mean, this person has been doing this for almost 30 years with people, and he actually does it now in a weekend. So we know that the world is speeding up when you go from writing your book in eight days to writing your book in a weekend. But I, I really was. I said, the minute I heard about it, I said, I want to do this. And of course, it sounds impossible. It's really a process that gets you out of this kind of logical thinking where you're analyzing everything, where you're stopping yourself. And it just is getting into your right brain, your kind of your soul, your creative side, your heart. You just write, and you don't worry about, like, you know, if you made a mistake, if you need to do research. It's really just allowing the book to flow. So, of course, I wrote, actually, 30,000 words in three and a half days longhand. I didn't even type it on a, on a on a typewriter or a computer. Typewriter, nobody uses those. Maybe they do. But I didn't even use a computer. I basically wrote longhand. And that was the genesis. Like, you know, that was kind of the kernel of my book. And anyone who's written longhand knows 30,000 words, like writing six hours a day, just writing and writing and writing. And the process actually really, really works. And I have to say that my final book ended up pretty close to what I'd written. Of course, I ended up embellishing it more after, but the process works. When you get out of your own way, I mean, isn't that true everywhere in life? When you get out of your own way and just allow the inspiration and allow yourself to flow with it, pretty magical things can happen. Right, and I see, wow, what they always say, nothing is impossible. It's always the mind concept. If if it appears to be, then that's what it's going to be. So I, I guess it appeared to you, hey, eight days is not bad. I could get this out with this. Yeah, I mean, you did it. The writing's the easy part. So everybody, like, I mean, you know, right. everybody does have a book in them, and and people want to write, and I would encourage people to write, of course. The writing is often the easiest part of it, as uh, as we know. And, like, you know, then there's the process after to polish it and design it and get it out in the world. But, you know, the, it's so worth the effort because I think writing, for a lot of people, is really cathartic, and it really offers this opportunity to share up part of yourself with people and people do that in different ways people can speak it or have conversations or do music or anything creative that really kind of reveals yourself is also healing for yourself does that make sense so like you know you're sharing it with the world but it also has this healing uh possibility in yourself and believe me in my own life i've been told especially to do with health i've been given a lot of those well that's impossible that's impossible and that's kind of one of the words that I, I find really interesting because I think, like you just said, nothing's re- – well, maybe some things are impossible, but when you take on the word impossible as a challenge in your life, you honestly never know um, how grand or how great can be, right? So I don't I, – I think a lot of people accept things at face value. I've never been a person to accept that kind of prognosis at face value, and I've just always said, let's see what else is possible. Um, so that, that's been mostly with my health journey, but I guess with writing the book, it was the same thing because, I mean, people are pretty skeptical, right? You hear, you write a book in eight days, you're like, hmm. I mean, the thing that was interesting is every single Mm -hmm. person did write a book. Like, you know, they had the kernel of a book. They may not have had a finished book. So that's, that's the sort of anecdotal story about that. And boy, am I ever happy I did it. A lot of resistance though for me and, you know, a lot of questions and like doubting and like, what if I'm the only person who doesn't write a book, you know, in the whole history of his career of having people write books. So it is, we have, we are humans and we have these resistances that come up and it's like really that can you face it and kind of go through to the other side, you know, what's on the other side of that resistance or that fear that stops so many of us. 
Right. And fear can only go a long way. It's it's all the mind concept. Again, fear is very powerful. And I've seen something on Twitter. I'm going to end up pulling it up, and they were talking about fear, too. Um, just getting into your book, though, Beverly, what what made Confessions come about? Yeah, I mean, so I have had a lot of health issues in my life, and they started when I was young. Um, so about, I guess, 13 years ago now, I, was, I went really downhill really, really quickly. I lost 40 pounds within three months, and people were stumped. It's not that I hadn't had health issues before, but I'd always bounce back. You know, I was kind of cavalier. Oh, yeah, I'm going to overcome this, but I wasn't bouncing back. And I was really at, honestly, like I, I looked like people would look at me, and I know people told me after they were going, this could go either way. She might live, but she might die. And I think more people were looking on the other side. And during these periods when I was really sick, um, I just started having memories of anecdotal or stories in my lifetime. I had been in the music industry. Um, I'd also had all these health challenges. And these kind of individual stories were just showing up. And I thought, wow, look at what I, how far I've come in a way and what I've learned from it. So I didn't really have a, this, if you do this, you'll get this result. Because I feel we're all individual, and I think all of our paths and all of our journeys are really individual. And we do need to do the exploration to see what works for us. But I thought, well, you know, maybe there are, people kept saying to me, you give me hope. Like, you know, knowing where you've come from, how ill you were, and where you're at now, wow, that gives me hope. And I thought, okay, well, if it gives these people hope, maybe it will give other people hope. So it was just this way to write them. And, of course, I didn't write them in any traditional linear order. So if you've looked at the book, you know it kind of jumps from one topic and one decade to another decade. And because I, I found it was really um, it wasn't interesting to me to see it in a linear fashion. It was more interesting to see it in the context of, you know, what happened and what could somebody take out of this life experience and life lesson. And then I thought this was happening even before I went to the retreat. The idea was to just walk, listen to this tape, uh, subliminal tape, and I was walking in the dead of winter and I was kind of channeling these stories and having conversation with uh, talk show host, a very famous talk show host. So I wrote, I ended up writing my book as a long conversation. So it's similar to what you and I are doing. You'll ask me a question and then the story would come out and then there would be, you know, another comment or question. So it's written very conversationally. And I had a lot of resistance in the publishing world. People said, that'll never work. You know, you can't write your book that way. All the impossible is impossible. It's never been done. And I went, well, that would be all the more reason why I want to do it. If no one's ever done it, let me be the one to do it. And what's interesting is when people read the book, that's what they like. They like this idea that they're in the conversation. They feel like they're having the conversation with me and that the talk show host is asking the questions that they would ask. So, I mean, it might be hard to imagine However, for some reason, it really works because people love to be in conversation. Right, we do. That's all part yeah. of the communication process. Uh, but people definitely need to get back to conversating more face-to-face, though, but um, that would be another subject. I well, no, I, I would love to talk about that because I think we've lost that. And, you know, I mean, part of my writing, and, you know, I do share on the Huffington Post and on Family Guiding and some other sites okay. as well as my own blog. But one of the things I really strive for is, like, how do we bring the reader into the conversation, even though it's 
silent, and I think I spend a lot of my life, like a lot of us, having silent conversations right online with people, be it through email or answering, you know, comments on blogs or on Facebook or wherever we're at. And like, I think we are losing this ability to have person-to-person conversation. I think that's part of who we are as human beings. And, you know, this is part of this whole idea of the hippie values because uh, going back to the book a little bit after I'd written it, you know, my brother (laughs) announced to me, he goes, you know, he read the book and he goes, I just really need to tell you that you weren't really a hippie, Beverly. (laughs) I went, what do you mean I wasn't a hippie? Because the title had also come. It was sort of channeled. I don't know how. I just had this idea. Oh, yeah, Confessions of a Middle-Aged Hippie. And it was like, of course, that's, that's me. So, you know, because I think when people think of hippie, they think of a specific lifestyle, right? It was like right, this yeah. counterculture, it was the sex, it was drugs, it was rock and roll. And like yeah. not to disappoint people, although I was in the music industry, that's not <laughs> the hippie. <laughs> I was there, but it wasn't really the sex and drugs part so much. Maybe a little, not right. drugs for sure. But, you know, so it's like, well, wait a minute, but I was a hippie. So hippie for me is this really, really strong value system. And then, you know, I'll talk to people and I'll say, well, hippie is a value system. And they go, well, what do you mean? I go, well, it was the birth of the peace movement, love, community, uh, compassion, meditation really came out of that whole, you know, period in time. It was about art. It was about music. It was about love. It was about community and organic living and consciousness. And this was the value system that was birthed back then. And inevitably, no matter how old or how young someone is, they'll go, wow, I'm a hippie. (laughs) I didn't realize it, but I'm a hippie. And then I'll say, of course, because at the core of who we are as human beings, we all carry that value system. So, yeah, we are all hippies. And I think hip, the, hip, the word hippie has been a little bit maligned in the media because it's really been skewed to the lifestyle as opposed to the value system. And what I'm seeing now is these values are really part of our current cultural conversation. They're not considered counterculture. They're not considered revolutionary anymore. They're really considered part of who we are, right, and how we're, I guess, evolving or how I hope we aspire to be that. I mean, we, we may not always see it, but, you know, that's really at the core of our humanity. Right. And and when I thought about hippies and looking thinking about the movie Forrest Gump, that's what they did portray like the hippies, the sixties, it was a volatile and rebellious decade, but at some point in life, I mean, even as being a hippie, you had to grow up and work, you know, it wasn't just all about let me go out there like you said and let me do the drugs, even though probably most of them probably were doing it, but that's not all that it was tend to be and that's what it's always been stereotyped as. Yeah, and the unfortunate part is a lot, you know, like I was sort of doing some research after saying, like, you know, people would ask this question, well, where are all the hippies? And it's like, well, look at the environmental movement. Or, you know, a lot of them went on to be environmental lawyers, or they went on to really be um, people who fostered community, like within a certain area. Someone just sent me a recent article. It was kind of interesting. It was like 10 places in, in the U.S. that you'll find hippie, quote, communities. And it was cool, like it was Arizona, and it was in Oregon, and it was in New York, and not city, but New York State, and Washington, like, you know, just all over the country, there are these communities of people who are living the value system. So did it ever go away? Like, people would say, well, where are all those old hippies, or whatever? I go, well, I'm going to be a middle-aged hippie forever, so I don't know about the old hippies, but I'm going to stay the middle-aged hippie. You know, where are these people? And it's like, they're all of us. They're all here. They just went on. So if I'm 
the hippie, I'm writing about the value system, right, or sharing that in the pieces that I write, or people are in, you know, the climate change movement now, or wherever they're they're at, it wasn't something that went away. It just it just evolved, if that makes sense. You know, it evolved so that right. it now is part of who we are. Nobody back, you know, back then meditation was considered what? You know, now it's not. Like you talk about meditation, and it's actually being talked about if we taught meditation in school to young people, we would, our future generation would be a generation who strove for peace. You know, it would totally change the the face of, of how we evolve the next generation. So that's that's what I see. Like I see it's really strong and it's really alive. And it actually is in all of us to live whichever way we want to live those values. And it'll be different for everybody. Right. Now, Beverly, from a historical point of view, in your opinion, are you proud of the hippie movement and see it as an event that produced positive changes in society? I think so, and like from an ast- like you know, so I'm not an astrologer. So if there's any astrologers listening, I'm a very generalist as far as astrology. But you know what was happening back then? So they say it was between 1964 and 1969 that was really the birth of the hippie movement. And ast- astrologically, at that time, you had um, a conjunction of Uranus and Pluto. So Uranus is this planet of sudden change um, and revolution and Pluto is like the old institution so like all of the things that we hold near and dear so you had this conjunction so during a conjunction you have seeding of new ideas and this is definitely what we saw back then recently between 2012 and, and just in 2015 which we'll say, I'm sure everyone would say, there were pretty tumultuous times. We had seven exact squares of those same two planets. So you're seeing everything kind of topsy-turvy again. You're seeing a lot more of this coming into the mainstream mindset. So do I think it was, I think it's a movement that's continuing. I think we're kind of at almost a midpoint right now where it's part of the conversation. Now it's up to us as, as a species, as a human being species, to actually bring these things to fruition. And like said you know you look around the world and we hear everything so immediate now and we see so much violence and we see a lot of negativity but then if you really look there's a lot of amazing things going on too and it's about shaking up the status quo so it's about being conscious of that and making the changes in your own life so you're contributing what how I look at it you know I just wrote a recent article about climate change because I didn't realize like we still have so far to go and we're really talking about saving our planet now as opposed to all of the other things that seem to you know gain the news it's like we all need to do our part and not be so cavalier about simple things like recycling newspapers you know I mean I found out that 69% of all newspapers are not even recycled I was like what are people doing you know I mean this is should be so top of consciousness and being concerned that we live in harmony with nature with the planet so these are the kinds of things that I think were very much a part of the hippie movement and I think it's part of the conversation now and younger generation it's not only people who grew up in the 60s you know I can meet people who are in their 20s who have the same consciousness so I think it, it I think it was a really powerful movement and maybe it hasn't been given its just due and it still has that kind of hippy-dippy like you know connotation that the media made of it um, back then and hasn't looked at the broader picture and hasn't you know looked at like wow the peace movement was born then I mean I think the world's always been in an and a peace movement. However, it really was brought to the attention of people that 
this is a, this is a key issue for us right now. Still is, right? right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, somebody, I've just been talking to people about this, like the more of us who hold this peace consciousness and really see peace as a possibility, the better the op- the chances, you know, because it can't happen if people walk around negative and think it's not it's not possible or that you're naive to think peace is possible. It's like, well, if I don't believe peace is possible, then it can't be possible, right? If everybody doesn't believe something's possible, then of course it's not possible. So that's, I guess that's the kind of message that I love sharing. It sounds like that's what you're doing too, like change this mindset, you know, like what you think about and what you believe is really what's the possibility to manifest in the world. And then you join lots of people together who have that same belief system and you create a stronger possibility. Exactly. And I did. I found that tweet that I was looking for. Um, It's a Japanese proverb. Fear is only as deep as the mind allows. Mm-hmm. That was the proverb, and that made sense. It's only as deep oh, as the yeah. mind allows. However far your mind wants to go, that's as far as fear will go. And fear, well, fear can be good, but fear can hold you back, though, at the same time. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think there's a lot of people who don't get on the other side of fear. Like, you know, the fear stops and whatever the thought comes into their head, oh, I can't do this, or I'm not good. Whatever these things are, and a lot of it, we just bring it along, you know, from childhood or one experience in our life that really starts defining a lot of other experiences. So it's about, it is about raising consciousness and catching yourself. And I call it more about being object, you know, being able to objectively observe your thoughts, which is the human challenge, because they are going to be there, as you know, (laughs) they just keep going through your head and through your head. And the idea, and I'm not that great at meditating yet, is but to not attach to the thought, not buy into those thoughts, but to just thank them, right, and let them go and just watch them objectively as if you're observing what's going on in your head. Because it's amazing how people stop themselves. And at times it's not they don't even realize they're stopping themselves. And it's just some simple fear that really all they have to do, like you said, is just don't allow it to become your life. Just recognize it, just, you know, come out on, I call it coming out on the other side, because you just kind of have to face it head to head, and then come out on the other side of it. Right, exactly. Uh, and just getting back into hippie, um, what's your one kind of a definition of hippie? Yeah, I mean, I really see hippie again as this, overarching value system like this you know it always starts for me with peace and like i'm totally a peacenik like you know i mean i have a license plate with the word peace i basically am carrying this peace consciousness uh and with you know i I walk around with my rose colored glasses on too literally and figuratively you know (laughs) seeing the world as that possibility that positive that possibility of peace and and really seeing more people want peace than don't it's the few that who disrupt the many right um, but that's, you know, I think hippie was really this incredible value system that we embody, and if we live it, you know, that's the whole thing. Do, will we live it? Um, we've kind of created a society that is based on this growing economy and always wanting more. And one of the profound things that I, I just learned when doing some research was that nature never takes more than it needs. And if people really think about that, we think nature is about survival of the fittest, but it actually is not. 
nature is about cooperation and democracy. And we certainly have not learned this lesson of not taking more than we need because we've built an economy, you know, we've built a consumer-driven economy that's always wanting more, more, more. And, like, this is what we're sort of brainwashed if we choose to be brainwashed that you know we need this to be this or we need this to be better or we need more and we've created a little bit of a disposable society so i think hippies really understood this idea of being in community caring about each other having compassion for both the world the land and also for each other about the necessity of the quality of food that we eat so like you know when i say what's the definition of hippie it's really it's really, for me, the main one is peace and love. And, I mean, it might sound trite to people, but honestly, at the core of who we are, we are love. We are peace. And so is it happening right now in our world? I think we're at that kind of tipping point, you know, like the more people who live that, the more that's what we'll see in the world, exactly what you were saying. You know, you're going you're gonna to generate whatever you're thinking or whatever you're being. So if you can be love, if you can have compassion for people. I know the Dalai Lama said, compassion is the radicalism of our time. If you think about that, how scary is that? That that would be radical to be compassionate, to actually live a compassionate life. So all of those things together are my are my definition of hippie. And like in that sense, I'm happy to be hippie. You know, I think anyone would be happy to be a hippie if they're living that life and living that kind of value system and actually being of service to others, having compassion, living peace, living love, you know, revering what? nature. Yeah. So, Bev, what differences do you think you would see in society today if there never had been a hippie age. Yeah, that's a hard one to predict, right? Because we go through these cycles, you know. So I think in some ways, on an, on a much grander level, we are living, you know, the human species, we think we are the be-all and the end-all <laughs> on the planet. And in some ways we behave that way. I just think it had to be that. I don't know, does that make sense? Like, you know, we go through these periods in our history where we have radical new movements happening. And, I mean, anyone who's into astrology, I can't give you examples at the moment, but, like, if you go back through history, you'll see these times when these planetary configurations were almost predicting this was going to happen. I mean, what we've seen in the last three years is almost the same thing. We've seen the banking system. We've seen the government system, right? We've seen the educational system. All of these kind of institutions that have been so uh, revered or, you know, just thought this is the way it is, they've kind of had their own sense of collapse or been questioned. Uh, the political system, we're moving way more back right now to this people movement. That's one thing I really, I think the hippie generation was about people movements. We're seeing just unlikely groups of people all over the world standing up as a community against uh, ravaging of their land. Um, so this this has been the, the really interesting thing. I, I think that it was a destined time for our planet to have the hippie movement. So what would it be like now? I don't even know if I can imagine it. You know, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. It's It just was. It was kind of part of our destiny as a human race, I'll say, to be really, really cosmic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, when you think about as above, so below, like I really believe that. And when people say as above, so below, like what's happening in the heavens is is mirrored here on earth. You know, we're all, it's all a connection. 
Right, it is a bit, uh, <laughs> and it's strange yeah. as time it is. It's a, it is a big connection. Now, just writing your book, who was your target audience for this? Yeah, and, you know, that's a really big one in the publishing industry. Like, you know, who are you writing to? And, I mean, I could say I'm writing for boomers, or I'm writing for women, you know, over the age of 40, or, you know, I mean, I, I could say a target, and then there's that part of the rebel in me. <laughs> when somebody says, who is your ideal audience, it became a little challenging because I would be getting uh, comments or reviews from people in their 20s and from men. And I was like, okay, well, if my audience is supposed to be boomer women, then how come all these young people are totally getting it? (laughs) It's like, okay, so who is my target audience? And I think what happens with the story is when you read about people's – so one of the things is I know that I am a storyteller. So in each chapter I'm telling a story, and within that story I think what happens is people reading can relate to that from their own perspective, you know, from their own life, from something that's happened in in their life. So even if I'm writing about something that happened, for example, in the 60s, you don't necessarily have to have lived or been growing up in the 60s to have something in your own life where you've had a similar experience. So my audience, as much as I know this is not what, you know, is you're supposed to say is my audience is I mean people who first of all love reading stories and people who are curious like there's a lot of people who are curious about growing up during that time because I mean we see everywhere the 60s and 70s kind of permeating now whether it's fashion I mean you see a lot of the fashion trends are back now the music is more as popular or more popular than ever a lot of the artists that you know were the kind of the groundbreakers whether it was the Beatles or whether it was James Taylor they're still their music is still relevant. It's not like it was left there or it became dated. It was a, it was kind of a revolutionary time in a lot of ways, from the music and the mm-hmm. art and the film and the fashion and just everything about it. So it's the target audience is curious people, see people who are curious, people who grew up during the age definitely will remember it. You know, I mean, my references aren't necessarily to that period in time, but more what was happening to me during that period in time and how that uh, how that played out, whether it was the music industry or my health. So I don't know, does that make sense? So like if it's just somebody who I guess is curious, I mean, a lot of people are attracted to the word confessions, and then I went, oh, my God, what confessions am I giving here in this book? Right, somebody right. said to me, okay, come on, share one little confession with me. And I went, well, when I really thought about confessions, it's not that down and dirty, you know, kind of confessions, other than it's confessions about being human and about I really share a lot about my resistances in, in relationship to my health and how I spend a lot of my time trying to prove I'm right and they're wrong, whoever they were, like doctors and the medical profession. I finally did walk away from them. So there's a lot of this humanness in it um so in sharing these stories i'm kind of confessing that i'm a human being and that that's what i think people relate to because people have resistances and that's what we're here to learn and grow through right and to be challenged by and to see what is it that stops us so the confessions isn't um so much the like I said, that in that sense, it's right. this confessions of being a human being and what that means through all right. these different periods we go through in our lives. Um, so, yeah. 
Right, because I know a lot of people probably would be thinking that, oh, well, this book just um, <laughs> totally on about the hippie life. And not actually, once you start reading the audience, then you will actually get into it it's way more than that, which we will be talking about as soon as we come back from this commercial break with Beverly Golden. We'll be right back after this. Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog Talk Radio, baby. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We are back with Beverly Golden discussing about confession of a middle-aged hippie, but it's just not all about the hippie life. It details more into that, talking about alternative medicine, all the things of anything that you probably can imagine of dealing with life in particular. That's what this book is discussing about. Don't let the title actually fool you on that part because we don't want to just think about those times. But those times were the good times, so that's I think that's where all the good music actually literally me where the good music came from. You know, you got um who um Jimi Hendrix. I love that. This was a movement that actually promoted the positive things. Um, this was a time during the war, and I'm sure, Belle, you probably lost uh, plenty of friends to the war and, and going on to the draft and, and stuff. But those are the experiences, you know, that we had to over that you had to overcome. Um, Belle, this is what I would like to ask, though. So, um, what was the tra- transition like for you going into the 70s and 80s? Yeah, it was really interesting because I had gone to school to I had gone into business. So I was in business marketing. Um really wanted to be in, you know, the business world. I had left high school early and I'd gone to university and here I was like 400 males, <laughs> you know, and there were four females. So at that time when I went in in the late 60s, early 70s, it was more the early 70s, but it was just it was just really interesting. Women weren't doing business, right? But in my last year, I got involved with the radio and television arts people. And at that time, hair, I don't know if anybody listening remembers hair. I mean, there's been so many revivals of hair. It was kind of the musical of the time. It was really revolutionary, the way the music was presented, the topic about the Vietnam War. And 
it was I decided I'm going to audition for Hair. They were doing a local production. Well, I didn't get in because people said you look like you should be on the Tonight Show, not really in Hair, right? So I was with like my big fall and like my nice dress that I picked up when I was in San Francisco. And I'm in Canada, so we were doing production here in Toronto. And like so, I'm at university studying business, but I get involved at school. I said, well, I got to do something, so I got involved in the radio and television arts world, right? So here I am, kind of. Um, hovering in two worlds, if that makes sense, or living in like this desire to be performing and singing, and then this desire to be in business and to be doing marketing for consumer marketing. So after that, somehow I graduated, and a friend of mine, one other girl in the course, introduces me to this man who's a talent agent. I'm like, oh my God, a talent agent, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be working in research. And I went and auditioned for him, and within a week I was in a traveling band as the lead singer in the band. Um, so most of the 70s I spent in the music industry for was was really not at all in my plans. You know, I mean, I had all these other plans, and it just fell into just showed up for me and like one of the things I didn't realize then but the idea is things show up in our life and if they're interest if they interest you the idea is say yes to it you know say yes to life because we're always presented with these opportunities so if they really resonate say yes and just see where it leads you don't really have that much to lose that's So I spent all the 70s in the music industry. I sang in a lot of show bands, and then I met my former husband, who'd been fairly well-known in Canada in in some of the groups, like he was in Lighthouse and Pepper Tree, and some of the groups maybe in the U.S. they don't know as well. However, very, very big groups here. And he and I forged kind of a, a career together in the music industry, and that was our goal. I, my goal was I'm going to make it in the music industry. I'm going to be a best-selling songwriter. And, you know, we had some wonderful moments and some wonderful experiences that I've written about in the book. Um, we didn't make it, but it was like kind of an interesting decade in the 70s to be in the music industry. So I spent all of the 70s in the music industry with different groups and then with our own group, like I said, and recording and traveling. And I'm... I don't know if I like being on the road. I'm not really a person who loves being on the road. There is no glamour, honestly, in being on the road um, in a rock and roll band or more like an R&B band because we, we were more like, you know, doing Steely Dan and Stevie Wonder and Average White Band and like, you know, all of this kind of more R&B music. So I, grew, I spent the 70s after graduating business marketing. Here I am in the music industry. It's like, what? Um, so it was kind of an interesting detour we'll say and it was an amazing decade for music though i mean like you said look at the music that came out of the 60s and 70s nobody's forgetting that music it's still popular why it sure is still being played to this day that's the music because now everything sounds robotic everybody want to sound like everybody else everybody want a quick dollar but i did tell you listeners that we were going to talk more in detail about beverly's book um, Belle, now we talk about traditional medicine versus alternative medicine. Now in yep. your book when you now in your book you were having a baby, um, it went to the conventional medicine, but what detoured you I mean, what actually detoured you to choosing the alternative over traditional medicine in your life? Well, I've had, you know, I mean, throughout my life, so I had my first really, really um, big health issue was when I was young, between like the ages of 13 and a half and 15, and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. You know, like 
my parents were i again i was i had lost a lot of weight i was at 89 pounds and i'm not maturing you know you're going this is the puberty time and i had my first surgery when i was just under 15 right and um it was horrific so i i write a little bit about that as being what was, I guess, that impetus for me in my life to start asking a lot of questions? Because at the time, my parents, I don't think they asked too many questions. They were just really happy that somebody found something and they said they're going to fix me. And, of course, you know, doctors are can be cavalier. I mean, I, I bless doctors for when you have serious condition. But in this case, it was like they said, oh, she'll be fine. And, of course, it it became this lifelong seesaw for me. And at the age of 28, I was with my husband at the time, and I had a traditional medical doctor, gastroenterologist, who basically asked me, do you ever want to have children? And um, I said, yes. He goes, well, don't. He goes, because I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to be on drugs the rest of your life. You're never going to be able to have children, and you're going to have to have multiple surgeries. So that was a really big turning point for me at 28 because I just, in that moment, I looked at him and I know something in me went, thank you, see ya, I'm going to see what else is possible out there. Because who, you know, I mean, maybe some people would have bought into that, but it just wasn't for me. Like there's no possible way I was buying into that prognosis. Uh, You know, I'm sure it was said with all wonderful intentions for me to try to prepare me but however I it didn't resonate so that's when I went on my alternative <clears throat> health journey at that okay. time there weren't a lot of people who were to go to you know like and so I had found the one doctor he was actually a medical doctor who was doing a lot of alternative therapies and no, you couldn't get in to see him of course because he was just so in demand and I begged my way in to see him and that was really my, I guess now I would have to say I would always go to alternative first, no matter what. And I've still had a lot of health scares in my life that the traditional medical people have given me these crazy prognoses. And um, I've just continued to defy them. So I, and I, and like I said, it's I, I was always trying to prove, this is part of what I read about, I was trying to prove I'm right and they're wrong. And I did end up having another surgery in 2008. This was six years after I told you I had lost all this weight and I looked, I really did look like a walking skeleton. Um, I even put the picture in the book because I thought, you know, it's one thing to sort of describe it, but when people see it, when people saw me, their mouths would fall open. I mean, I had people look at me and I had one young man in a restaurant go, I'm praying for you, ma'am. Like, that's how scary I looked. And it was just like, wow, I don't know. Like my daughter, I I write about this in the book too. Um, When I was really, really sick and nobody here knew what to do, I heard about this clinic in Germany and just very spontaneously, like, I'm telling you, I couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs. Here I am flying to Germany to this clinic in hopes this is the answer. Um, And there they said to me, this is how my book starts. They said, there's very little hope for healing on a physical level. We suggest that perhaps you pray. I was like, wow, I just got chills saying that again. Because, that, you know, people said, no one talks that way. I go, that's exactly what they said to me because I actually wrote it in a journal. That's one thing I did in Germany. I wrote all these things. They, and they were saying things to me like, you know, the, um, the soul does not care if the body is healed. 
So, you know, there are people, like, there's basically, if you believe we're multi, you know, dimensional, we're not just physical beings, we have a spiritual, you know, and we have, a, we have an emotional and we have a physical self. Like, you can heal on one level of yourself, and there are people who maybe don't transform their physical illnesses, but I was determined. And at the airport, my daughter actually, all my family was there, and I'm in a wheelchair, because I can barely walk, and yet I'm going to Germany. My daughter actually looked at me and she went, Mom, it's okay if you want to go there and die. And I was like, what? You know, that was really shocking because she says, you have suffered so much. I totally understand if you just want to, you know, leave here. And, of course, I maybe I was just so in it that I didn't even see that. I just said, well, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Trust me, I still have a lot to do here. And I didn't get really great prognosis. I didn't have a lot of support. People didn't really think I should even go to Germany. And this is one of these things when people sort of use this, well, that's impossible. You can't do that. Like even in Germany, people said it's going to be impossible for you to heal because it's that complicated. Every organ in your body is involved, you know. So I said, well... Okay, I've bounced back before, and I mean, that was my thinking, right? I've bounced back before. Well, this wasn't really bouncing. This was really like crawling, you know what I mean? Step by step back to health. And then in 2008, I chose to have surgery again because the doctor I saw said, I can tell you 90% that the quality of your life will improve. And that was pretty hard for even the stubbornness of people like me to take that 90%. I mean, I'm sure most people who are really ill would love to hear 90%, right? You can improve your health. And I said, you know what? I'm going to work with this doctor, and I'm going to trust that this was, is the right thing for me to do right now instead of trying to prove I can do this on my own. So that's, like, you know, that's the human part. Like, I want to, I want to prove I can do this. And it was all of the other things I was doing, all the alternative things, whether it was using crystals or having Reiki or having acupuncture or, you know, the way I was eating organically and making my own food. So all of these things I was still doing. I wasn't giving all of it over to the medical doctors. I was working with them. That was huge for me. I still do everything alternatively. I've still had many prognoses where people have said, this is, you're going to have to have this and you're going to have to do that. And I just, I just trust myself enough when it comes to health and asking questions and intuitively Why? making choices. Does that make sense? Like really going, okay, forget what everyone else is saying. What's the right choice for you in this moment? So, right, and that's what you have to do. You've got to make what's the best choice for you. I laughed, I snickered a little in your book because the fact that when you were at the time of your labor, you want your child to wait. You wanted to wait an extra day for your child to be born. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can tell that's right. There's me again trying to control her. Like, here I go into labor, like, so my daughter. So I did end up, so for anyone who's listening, this doctor who said, you're never going to get pregnant, you're going to have to do this. It's like, okay, well, let's see. I do have a daughter. So my daughter wanted to be here in the world, obviously, two months early. She was supposed to be born in August, a Leo, and she ended up coming in June. So here I'm in premature labor, going to premature labor the day on Father's Day. And I'm in the hospital. They're trying to stop it. And, of course, no luck. And they're saying, okay, 
your daughter, you have to have a C-section tomorrow. And I'm like, what? Here I am planning to have a natural birth, go through the Lamaze process, like not going to happen. It's like your baby, and they came in, they pulled the big guns. They had the head of, head of obstetrics they brought in. They said, if you don't listen to us, we're off your case, and you can go to another hospital. Talk about threatening me. <laughs> it was like, okay, I guess I don't really have that much choice here, right? I'm lying, my water's broken, my... And they're saying you have to have a C-section. And I just said, okay. I said, I really, and I don't, I'm not, this is, I don't want to offend any people who are cancers, but this happened to be on um, on the last, or, or Gemini's. This was the last day of Gemini, right? It was June 20th. So I said, uh, could you just like wait one extra day? Because I really don't want to have a Gemini child. And they looked at me, of course. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, anybody would laugh at me. I wanted to wait one extra day so she'd be a cancer. But no, they said, they'd say you're having your baby tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, cut time. And that's a whole other crazy story that I wrote about in the book because it it was hysterical in hindsight, but it wasn't hysterical in the moment, right, with pink dancing elephants and my ex-husband fainting literally and us not hearing her cry. But, yeah, so she was born on the last day of Gemini, and she does have cancer rising, though, so maybe she, she was trying to accommodate me or something by the time that she was born. But, yeah, this is me. It's like I'm always pushing the envelope with people, and I'm sure anyone out there can imagine like this whole team of doctors going you want us to what wait an extra day so she will not be a gemini so yeah i mean that's me that's me it's like if you don't ask you never know right if you don't ask for something you never know what's possible look i did ask that's all i can do is ask even though you said no but that just that cracked me up i love that part of, of the book um good now you're Let's talk about your adventures in raising a child TV star. Yeah, so we, you know, both, like, I mean, I feel, you know, like I came here with some, you know, creativity as far as writing and music, my former husband's music. So our daughter, um, really talented musically and acting, and from a really young age we knew, like, people were just drawn to her. That's a Gemini, though. So that's the good thing. Geminis are very social, and people really like them, and they're, Mm -hmm. you know, they like people. And you know some Geminis? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so she just, from a really early age, she had this ability, this charm, and this kind of charisma. And um, she just, again, just manifests. She was playing drums from a really early age, and then she manifested this television series, which I write about in in the book from at a young age. She had one TV series when she was even younger, and then at 11, this uh, pilot for a series came about. Um, it was about two girls, two tween girls, and it was one of the first shows of its time. And it was really written with a lot of integrity and a lot of... Um, humor but also realness to it so people gravitated to it even still all these years later people still remember the show but also relate to one or the other characters my daughter was the tomboy who played the drums and the other character was you know the girly girly type and they were best friends and they had all these wonderful wild adventures that you know 12 and 13 year olds so here again is this idea of age like you know that was targeted for 18 to 13 year olds but in the meantime people like in their 30s were watching it and relating to it so when you ask me about my book there's another example in my life my daughter's tv show was like much wider audience than they anticipated so her and i got to kind of travel together because 
the show was on in the U.S. It was on Showtime at first, and then it was on Disney. So we got to go to New York, and we got to go to L.A., and we got to go to England. So it was really an interesting time. And because of her age, they ha- you know, the, the mothers went with, with the girls wherever they were going. So it was very interesting because it's one of those things, like as a parent, it's like, do, am I making this decision for my child? Um, and yet we just knew that was who she is. So it's like, how can you not make the decision? Because it does inform the rest of their lives when they're doing television from, you know, doing that kind of thing from a young age. You're tutored on set. People are waiting on you hand and foot. Uh, but I, I'm happy to say my daughter is not at all like a spoiled, <laughs> whatever you would expect, you know, kids who are on TV or you hear about these horror stories of kids who, you know, had fame when they were young. And she still recognized all these years later. And the show uh, was in 65 countries around the world, I think, which was pretty amazing. Or maybe not that many, but like 40 to 60 countries countries around the world so uh, we've had some interesting times where she's wreck it she's still recognized and people go you look really familiar did i do i know you from school do i know you from camp or are you that girl who was on that tv show you know so it's kind of an interesting it's very different life it's really different and it's hard to know what it would have been like but like I said, raising her, it was some amazing adventures we had together. I say we were kind of both air signs. I'm also an air sign in Aquarius, so we were both like kind of flying parallel, you know, through these life experiences together. And it, it's um, just interesting times, you know, interesting how if you allow your child, like, you know, to do what they love. There's a lot of parents I know who who feared, say, their sons being in the arts because they don't know how are they going to make a living. But like I've always believed that you just encourage someone to do who they are. Like you know, if that's who they are, you just encourage them that way to be that person. So uh, yeah, a lot of interesting times then. Oh, I bet. And another part of the book, you know, when you said it, she was so completely bald. Um, you call it Nefertiti. That that's beautiful, and Nefertiti is a beautiful name. Uh-huh. I mean, it makes me think about Ten Commandments. Oh, and then the pictures in there. You could just look at them, make you want to pinch your cheek. People, you ask she's like that. Pinch. I know, and you know what she was like. People, when she was born, honestly, she because she was C-section, <clears throat> perfect head. We called her little Nefertiti. And, like, she had no hair for two years. So she had this, like, perfect skull for for all that time. And, like, people would stop at the at the nursery because she was, you know, in an incubator and just look at her because she's just so beautiful. And um, she's a beautiful spirit. I'm really happy that they convinced me or didn't give me a choice to have her as a Gemini because she's just a delightful spirit. Like, you know, she just has such a, a great energy and just, people really feel the people root for her, you know, like because there's just something about her. She's just very honest and real. Right, and it don't get any better than that. Now, Belle, let's talk a little bit about your inspirational views on Boomer Beauty for women with Asian anxiety and body image blah. Well, you know, this has been a big one for me, I have to say, because I went through, you know, the time when most people go through this kind of change and they're going through menopause. I was really sick. Like, I weighed, I couldn't get above, honestly, not eight, couldn't get above uh, 89 pounds for a really long time. So I looked like this walking skeleton. 
So I had, oh, I had no idea what I would have aged like. I came from this looking like I'm dying to all of a sudden after the surgery, like being somewhat look well I do look normal now I don't whatever normal is but you know I have this big challenge and this big challenge within me like all women do I guess you know it it seems to be so easy and so accessible to fix stuff or get injections or do surgery and it's like how do we lead by example you know how do we as women not get caught up in that how do we accept what I guess a lot of tribal people or other cultures know or they revere their elders right for wisdom and for life experience and the wrinkles on their face or the experiences they've lived it's easy to want to look youthful like be youthful beauty however that isn't what human beings are necessarily necessarily meant to live like right so it's it's a challenge so i personally haven't done anything would i love to look like i looked when i was so shy and so timid, you know, when I was in my teens and my 20s and my 30s, you know, and now, of course, however, the thing is, I think women, I think in some ways, a lot of women have changed the way they look. We we all have seen people, right, who do whatever, even the simplest of procedure, and you're looking at them going, who, like, what just happened to them? They're not looking quite real like they don't look real anymore it's very plastic and we see this so prevalently now and we see so much airbrushing and you know so much tampering that we don't have a real image right of what women look like as you age and everybody ages differently so it's like how do we embrace the process of of that like yes we get older but we don't have to decline we don't have to be ill we can do everything we can i mean that's another thing i do with people i do health and nutrition uh individualized programs for them to optimize and maximize who they are you know there's no one size fits all when it comes to health and well-being so it's like this idea of boomer aging there's so many people who are trying to turn back the hands of time but they're they're messing with the natural processes you know and that I guess it's do whatever makes you happy. However, I mean, I'm just looking, and if I objectively look at a lot of the women I'm seeing who are doing these procedures, I, they don't look like themselves anymore. You know, they, they they're starting to all look. And, yeah, you you know perfect, what I mean, right? Yeah. Right, and a perfect example of that, I love my girl, um, Kim, little Kim, but my God, she went too far with the. Uh, plastic surgery like she doesn't even appear to be herself anymore she looks like a a a china doll a terrible china doll it looks awful people yeah. oh it's so many um mickey um mickey rowan if i said mickey roman whatever i forgot his name it's just so many and i be and you know usually i have a little articles of people who who plastic surgery went bad and you know you just look at all of them dolly parton and I mean, Dolly Parton was so beautiful when yeah. she was young. Now look at her. She did. I'm telling you, everybody is not meant to take the knife. Come on, leave your skin alone. It's enough. Well, people. yeah, and the thing is, what are we creating in our society by whatever we're, you know, projecting or portraying to people that people feel they need to do that? That's the other big question. I write a lot about beauty and, like, inside-out beauty. Like, because when you have, like, inner self-worth, when you have inner confidence, that shines out. You know, mm-hmm. beauty isn't coming from the outside in. It's actually coming from the inside out. And this is a tough one for women. It seems to be less of an issue for men, although men are doing it too, believe it or not. Their numbers are... Yeah, they are. 
they're growing rapidly, and it's like, what's happening in our society that we feel we have to continually altering ourselves to be young? And whoever said we're supposed to stay forever young? You know, that's uh, that's the perennial myth that we <laughs> that we've maybe bought into. It, exactly, I think so. Um, one minute someone tell you, oh, you know, it's not right, and you just keep on doing it and doing it. And um, oh, it was another lady. She's a uh, she is like the owner or CEO of a clothing company. Oh, they showed so many pictures of her plastic surgery, and I was like, oh my god, you should have just stopped after the first one. And she just kept going on and on. It's like, oh Jesus, yeah. who was who was the doctor that even did this to you? Like, I really want to punch them in their face, but then you go oh. through this five times. Like, they should be stopped. They need to be. They should be. For doing this humiliation, like <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you're seeing the thing that's also scary is you're seeing younger and younger people. Like you know, I remember hearing that people were giving their kids uh, like a boob job at age 16 for their graduation. I went like, who, what? Or you know, like people are just doing it younger and younger. But I feel there's a movement. Like there's there are a lot of companies now who are really trying to bolster self-esteem as opposed to saying you know like we're not worthy. Like you, you see some of the companies now who are advertising, who are doing things really that are encouraging women to embrace who they are. But there's been a lot of years of a lot of, you know, negative talk or self image coming at women. And it's so interesting that how do we circumvent that? It really starts, like I said, with the younger generations, like, you know, to really infuse them with this sense of self worth. And that's up to all of us. So like, if we're going to lead by example, if they see all these older people doing all this, like, what's the example that we are setting for them? Yeah. Um, now, you know, biggest part of your book starts off about your mother, and of course, your mother and you always stuck like glue, no matter what um, the situation was, and that's what I admired the most. Um, even if it was a bad time, hey, this is still my mom, and we call it a legendary Lil. Your 98 year old mother is a powerful role model. Yep. Well, she's. I'm glad to announce she's 99 now, and she's going to be 100 oh, right, next year. Mom. She's just, she's, she's, she's like really this amazing inspiration. Like, you know, it's not like a lot of people know who she is, but the people who've met her are incredibly inspired by her. She's never used like all these crazy beauty products. She's used soap on her face. She's always had this amazing attitude of talk yourself out of it. Like, you know, there's mind over matter. Um, she hasn't, you know, her family all had health issues. She didn't get those health issues. And she she really has a, this joy for life, and I think that's the difference, right? Like, she really enjoys life. She's going, I'm sure she's out walking somewhere today with her friend. Um, so it's she's just been this real example of what's possible when it comes to aging gracefully, I'll say, without having all those concerns, like, you know, that somehow the generation that I'm in and the younger generations, I don't know where that disconnect. And I, I've written a lot about that older generation, too, because I think there's a lot of things from their lives that we could learn from, you know, the way they socialize, they're outside all the time playing. The food they ate was much healthier. They wrote longhand. They wrote letters and notes to each other. They had groups of people and, you know, communities of people they went out and socialized with. So, like, a lot of the things that we think are advances in our generation, maybe we've 
are neglecting some of the things that really have contributed to the longevity. There's a lot of people in that over 90 generation who are still very cognizant, still active, still enjoying life, still being inspirational, and yet I think we're going to not, you know, we're going to lose these lessons while they're still here. So this is why I've written about my mother and why I call her Legendary Lil because she's kind of legendary with anyone who knows her. And people go, I want to be like her. (laughs) I want to be like her. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, look at what her upbringing was. We need to inject some of that into our lifestyle too. So, yeah, she's pretty much, like I said, people who meet her are really inspired. And if you see her pictures, I mean, people don't believe it. Like, they won't believe that she's that age. They're like, no way. You know, we have this vision, again, of what getting older is about, right? We have this idea Mm -hmm. of what it means to get older. And the thing is, who created that? It's certainly not the generation my mother's in. So it's something we've created. So let's create something different. Exactly. Go on here, Mama. You bad, honey. Ninety nine, and don't even look at. That's why I'm talking yeah. about. That's why I told people the older people are the ones who are doing good. It's the ones like us in our thirties who are dying. And and, yeah. and look at also you and you go up to and you be like you thirty. Yeah, I am really. Uh, you sure? Can I see ID on that? <laughs> I need to see identification because you look not forty, but you look forty. <laughs> you little um, but it's true because um, you know what we're under such stress all the time we don't do the we things we don't live balanced lives we're not necessarily honestly people aren't looking after their individual health and well-being until no. they're in a crisis yeah. and it's like don't no. wait till you're in a crisis don't wait till you're acute be proactive be conscious all the time like you know because you're your best asset if you don't look after yourself you can't give yourself to the world. So that's why I've started now in the last little while just really saying, you know, health has been one of my big issues in my life. How can I help other people maintain or actually take their health to the next level wherever they're at, whatever they need to do to be the healthiest, the most vital, you know, because that's the only way you can really contribute to the world, right? Like if you don't have your health, I know it sounds cliche, but you really don't have much if you don't have your health. Right, you don't, and I'd rather take care of my health than to be in the hospital in the graveyard. People are not doing that anymore. They they choose to be unhealthy, and I know a couple of them, so you just have to let them be. Um, now, of course, you have had your trailblazing years, your acts of modeling, vulnerability through the written word. What? Sorry? <laughs> oh, your trailblazing acts of modeling, vulnerability through the through the written word. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I've always been a writer, you know, like I've always been writing. And I think for me what I've done is by being as open and honest and vulnerable in my writing, like that's what I'm saying in my book, right? Like it's just like it's hard sometimes to write about being human. Like, you know, people want to see the glossy, like Hollywood version. It's like, well, you know what? We're all human. And the only way we can learn is maybe, I think we learn from other people's stories. That's what I'm hearing this a lot more. Like when people share their stories or their life experiences, there's something in it for someone else. It doesn't have to match exactly, but I think this idea of being vulnerable um, is exceedingly helpful to other people because we've been taught and somehow in our society keep a stiff upper lip, you know, like, 
like don't show your whatever and like just you know people are i find this online a lot people are always seem to be so positive and po- so like you know everything's like fantastic and it's like well wait a minute we're human beings we have ups we have downs we have light we have dark um so it's kind of this Right, and that's it. Doesn't mean you got to stay there, but it doesn't mean to deny it. Also, like we have shifts, we have like it's okay to be sad sometimes. It's like you know, it's about knowing yourself and like allowing that within yourself. Because I've what I've learned, and not the easy way either, is that experiencing those things that's really where the learning and the growth comes. Right, like what is the sadness about? Right. You know what I'm saying. It's not always what it appears to be, but going a little bit deeper within ourselves, we learn a little bit more. And I think men have had the short stick on that. Men haven't really allowed to be vulnerable either. Like, you know, men more so than women haven't had that experience of being, it's okay to feel, it's okay to be vulnerable. So this is one of the things I've wanted to do in my writing is like just really like stir that up in people, you know, like stir up something in themselves where they start to question um, whatever the topic will be. Now I'm, like I said, I just wrote about climate change. Like where could you uh, contribute to be part of the solution. So I just think everybody counts. Like, you know, everybody counts. The power of one, everyone has a voice, and your voice and my voice and the next voice, it all contributes to a, something positive solution in the world. Right, and I was so just that, thinking about the, the effect that you mentioned, vulnerability. One of my coworkers said that she's not as vulnerable because of the lifestyle that she grew up. She always grew up where it had to be hard. You couldn't show emotion. So I think sometimes that's why it blocks a lot of people from being vulnerable. Um, don't cry. You better not shed a tear. You know, your parents always say you better suck it up, you know. So yeah. those things come about. Absolutely. Book, and that, that's doing does. a – that's a disservice to people. Now, to wallow in it, no, but to actually recognize it and like to be in it. Right. And like I always say, this too shall pass. Like, you know, nothing, I hopefully nothing is forever, and I always believe there's another way out. And this is where we need community, right? We need people who like actually appreciate us and listen to us and support us. And um, that's, that's a big topic now about being vulnerable, like, you know, taking the opportunity in our world to accept people and have compassion for them wherever they're at, whoever they are. And we somehow have lost all that. You know, we've created this false sense of happy, positive, and I'm not saying not to strive for that, but I'm saying, is that possible all the time? I don't know if it's realistic. So. No, no, I don't think so, because I can be happy most of the time, but at some point, you're going to have a little breakdown somewhere, and getting back to the real part of it all is your book is. It's very real. It's it's bold. It's right out, especially when you got to the part talking about your bowels. I mean, who's going to even say the word bowels? Most people don't even like to say, you know, I'll even say the <laughs> word. You know, but you let it know, hey, my bowels, it was a myth. And then we come yeah. over here like, really? Did she did she just talk about her bowels? I mean, darn. She just, she just said that in her book. But you're just been, you are. This is straight confessions. It's like, I'm not sure, Colonel. I'm letting you know, hey, this is what happened to me. I got, I mean, that's the only way I could be um, bold about it. You said confession, and that's what she's doing. She's putting it all out on the table, and that's, that can't get any better than that. Um, Thank you. Now, you're so welcome. Now, Belle, what does it really mean to embody, because you talk about this in your book, what does it mean to embody a paradigm shifter? And what is a paradigm well, shifter? 
Yeah, and I think a lot of it is, you know, I mean, a lot of the world that we live in is based on science and and facts, you know, like scientific. Uh, and this is what I was told a lot in my life, like, you know, this is what's your possibility or this is what's impossible. And I think to shift a paradigm, you have, sh- you know, there's a line in a Stevie Wonder song, and I don't know, it just came to me now. So it says, uh, you can't form a line if you're too scared to stand alone. And it's like, you can't change something if you're not going to be the one willing to question or the one willing to, you know what I mean, stand at the front of the line. This is what I'm saying. I asked so many questions, and I like kind of questioned everything. I'd never accepted things that I didn't want to hear. I didn't really accept at face value. You know, I'd say, hmm, okay, like, let's see if someone else has something to offer me. So it's like, how do you shift a paradigm of possibility? And that's in some ways, what I know I've done with my health, because I've just had that uh, not too long ago with a specialist who had given me a specific prognosis. And then he kind of scratched his head and he went, I'm not really sure what made me think that that's, you know, what was going to happen. So it's like, how do you shift something that where everybody's going, buying into something? And it's only someone who dares, I think, to say, let me follow what I think is right for me. Let me ask a lot of questions. Let me see what else is possible. And that's one of the big things for me, too. It's like there's a lot more possible when it comes to the human spirit. So don't all, you know, like facts are facts, and that's cool, and truth is truth. But when it comes to possibilities, we're constantly in this planet creating new possibilities, right? We're shifting a paradigm of belief. You know, the world was flat for a long time until... Someone came along and go, no, that's not. Well, so now you're busting this paradigm, and it's happening all the time, and that's what I try to do with my writing. It's like, why do we buy into these things that have become part of, you know, like I've written about calories, like, you know, how people are always weighing calories or measuring calories as if that's the only important piece when you want to lose weight. Well, in fact, it isn't, and it sort of grabbed the consciousness of people, and we just keep buying into it, so... Shifting a paradigm, I guess, in some ways starts with being willing to question it and just being willing to see what else is possible. And that I can say, I believe I have done officially when it comes to my health um, many times over. And there were a lot of people who didn't even think I was going to survive. So, like, I've shifted that paradigm of possibility into well, I did survive. So hopefully that makes sense to you. And it's like, just be, ask a lot of questions. And I think I just read an interesting book. And one of the things she said is if, if you can walk through the world with this curiosity, that's like living a, a, a good life. Cause you're curious about things. You're asking questions, you know, you're living in wonder. You're not just accepting everything as is. You're not just buying into the status quo. You want to, you know, you want to shift things, change things. So that's what I think I've always done, maybe more so in the last 10 or 15 years. You know, I was probably much shyer and much more, had many more fears when I was young. And I guess that comes with experience and age. But I see a lot of young people who are unbelievable. Like they're so entrepreneurial. They're coming up with amazing ideas. You know, we think that you can only do something this way and they just come up with this new invention and it just shifts everybody's thinking about something. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's mainly one of your philosophies, um, Beverly, life as a work of art. Yep. Well, that's that I really realized, that, like, we are not, it's not all dictated. You know, like, we have so many choices to create and recreate our life, so we are. 
in some ways, every day we wake up and we have this blank canvas called our life, and it's like, okay, what do I want to create today? What do I want to do today? What color do I want to add? You know what? So, and even a finished work of art can be recreated, right? You can paint over it. So I see that life is this really evolving piece of art. Like it's not static. It ha- we have this, uh, you know, I've really learned that we're constantly in a state of creation and recreating who we are. Um, so who I am today doesn't really, re- that was the other thing about writing the book. Like think about it. I'm writing these stories from maybe 20, 30, whatever number of years ago. Well, I'm not actually that same person. I mean, the core of who I am is the same, but the way I am is really transformed in so many ways so that's what a piece of art is that's what our life is we're transforming it all the time if we choose to be in a state of creation does that make sense yes ma'am it does good it sure does yeah so it's just you know like some days i sit and i go oh i don't like winter and it's like okay well let's do something go out and walk you know be in nature do something just to transform it like we have this ability by the choices we make the thoughts we think like you talked about at the beginning everything we're doing is creating our life it doesn't happen from the outside in it always happens from the inside out right it does it does and that's and one thing about change is every day you should want to improve yourself. And, you know, and that's what I kind of sort of find in your book. You know, every moment of your life you're changing. You was developing. You became a different person. Even when you got married, things started to become differently for you, you know. And when you go through this book, you feel like you just stepped right into your world, Belle. That's how I feel. Just looking at the pictures, that makes you think about your own parents back then, my mom with her afro, you know. You still wonder, like, what those <laughs> times were. And I wish I had, I wish I could do, like, the young author that I had on my show um, a couple of days ago, have a time machine and go back during those times to see what it was like during the wartime, the, the protests, everything. Oh, I just feel like it's a connection with this book. It really is. It's it's so much. It makes. I I have to admit, you are a true trailblazer. I don't know if anyone have went through these same encounters, but you really are a trailblazer. And I I love the part. It seemed like a fairy tale, but just the part of how you met your husband, and it was funny <laughs> after the after getting married. You know, you had to clean up the house. Like, who asked someone to clean up their house? <laughs> I know, but we're telling the whole book. We got to let the. Yeah, I know, but I'm glad you enjoyed it because that's the whole point. Like, I do. At times, like, you know, I love seeing the crazy humor in things because they are. Life is has these humorous moments. Right. You got to laugh. You do. You have to laugh at your own account of it. Because if you don't, no one else will. That's part of life. It, it, It might seem crazy. Even if it hurts, you still got to chuckle at it. Hey, it was something I went through, but I overcame it. Um, but, yeah. Bill, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I really appreciate you taking out your time. Um, where thank you, Tignesha. I really enjoyed it. Like, you oh, know, well. we really got into a lot of stuff. And, you we know, did. I'm easy that's to find. My, yeah. Right, that's why I couldn't end it. I couldn't end the show like that because it, it got <laughs> interesting. I wanted the listeners to really grasp this. So that's why I didn't end it, listeners. And that's what I love about Internet Radio because you can control it however you want. Now, if I was on the FM station, They'll be on told me, get out, get out that seat right now. 
there you go. No, it was great. Like, it's like, this is what life is. It's about having conversations, right? And, like, I can tell that you're relating just either reading some of my chapters in my book or just having this conversation. This is how we relate, right? Like, this is what communications about it's about having these conversations and that's why i encourage people just have conversations anyone listening i'm open if you want to have a conversation email me you know you can find me on my website my books available everywhere i'd love to hear other people's stories because i think they're fascinating so i'm just really open to that because i think we need to keep this like human to human uh connection alive um we're not technology we're human people you know like we we need to interrelate with each other relate to each other person to person right we do and part of life as you mentioned as well in your book it's been a guinea pig it's been a guinea pig you have to be the guinea pig to experiment to test it out, to know if this works for you. That's life, and that's what you went through, Beverly. Beverly experienced life. It's all part of growing up, and, and, well, basically it is. It's life. But once again, thank you so much, and God bless you, and I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving, Beverly. Same to you. Same to all the listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the great conversation, and we'll talk again. We sure will. We will definitely do this sooner. Then later. Okay. All right. Okay. Bill, thank you. Have a and fabulous leave, week. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye you, for now. You are so welcome, darling. And before I leave you listening, the truth of the day from my friend Mary Ellen is this the opinions of others are merely their thoughts. With Thanksgiving approaching and families gathering, take, I personally want to take time to remind everyone of this powerful truth. Accept this fact the opinions of others are merely their thoughts. Do not regard them as your truth. Learn to regard people's opinions as simply their perceptions can help you avoid stress and family disagreements. When you believe everything other people say, you will feel vulnerable. Do not take what they say personally. Allow them to have different reasons for their own viewpoint. Today, allow other people to have their thoughts as they allow you to have yours. Enjoy the day, everyone. I will see you by next week because I will be off for this Thanksgiving. But, everyone, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Eat plenty of food. Don't worry about the carbs and the calories right now. Do your cleanse afterwards. Enjoy your day, loved ones. God loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com. 